Welcome to the Surge Strength Podcast, powered by Ritter Sports Performance. This podcast is dedicated to helping swim coaches and swimmers learn how to properly implement dry land and strength training programs that result in moving better, reducing injuries, and swimming faster. Let's join your host, Chris Ritter. Happy New Year, everyone. This is probably the latest Happy New Year you'll hear, but we are in 2021. Thanks for listening to the Surge Strength Podcast. On this episode, some really good stuff. Neuromuscular system curiosities. That's a mouthful, and it's really interesting. Some of the stuff I'm going to talk about, too. It's pulled from the lesson in the Surge Strength Dryland Certification that talks about some of the curiosities that maybe you didn't know about the neuromuscular system and you could think about a little bit more as you're going through your dryland training and how you can actually leverage and take advantage of it. Some really interesting stuff. I always am surprised at how complex and amazing the nervous system is. And especially if you can wrap your mind around it just a little bit and apply it to your training, you can really increase the level of results that you're getting. And then in our dry land talk, we are going to dive into the second part of the latest SSDC study session where those that are working through and trying to earn their SSDC credential, that's the Surge Strength Dryland Certified Credential, uh, they send me in questions as they're working through the curriculum and I do my best to answer them and help point them in the right direction. So that's going to be part two of that study session. But I wanted to open up This episode, too, just to let you know about a little bit of something that I'm challenging myself, a new project, kind of side project, if you will, that I'm throwing out there for 2021. If you're interested in going along for the ride, I am starting yet another podcast. I know. Yes, another podcast. It is called Remember Pink Monkey. If you don't get it, that's okay. Check it out on any podcast platform that you're listening to this one. Remember Pink Monkey. And what I'm going to be doing is challenging myself to read one book a week through the next year. Then I'm going to have a short podcast that's weekly where I'm talking like 15 minutes or less episodes. And what I'm going to do is let you know what the book was about just in general. So if you don't know what the book is about, and then I'm going to share my takeaways and applications that I may take from the book. And I'm going to do a lot of different books. It's not necessarily a swimming specific podcast by any means, not even a training specific podcast. I'm going to be doing lots of different books and really what Whatever piques my interest at the moment. And I feel like it's kind of interesting challenge to see if I can keep up with it through the year. And hopefully if you're listening along as you go through with me on Remember Pink Monkey podcast that you'll be able to, you know, maybe pick up some ideas or pick out some books that you want to dive into as well and continue to learn. As I look back and I just think of how much I have learned since I actually left a formal school setting, i.e. college. And it really amazes me how much I've learned. And I never want to stop that and being curious. And that kind of ties back into the neuromuscular system curiosity, why I decided to pick that lesson for this episode. But anyway, if that other podcast interests you, feel free to subscribe. Remember Pink Monkey and check it out. That's probably the only time I'll mention it on this podcast. But yeah, let's jump into dryland training, guys. Inside the Surge Strength Academy. Neuromuscular system curiosities is what I'm going to be covering in this lesson. I purposely titled it curiosities because some things we do know and they may even be at a theory level and some things we're still 
quite not sure how exactly it happens, but we have a pretty good idea. First off is this cross-education phenomenon. And what this basically says is that performing a unilateral resistance training exercise, so unilateral means one side. So if I'm just doing an exercise with my right arm, it actually produces increased strength and neural activity in the contralateral resting muscle. So let me break that down for you. Contralateral is opposite side. Unilateral is one side. Bilateral is both sides, okay? So unilateral, right arm. If I'm doing a bicep curl with my right arm and my left arm is just staying still, simply by doing a bicep curl with my right arm, the left muscle bicep specifically, because that's what I'm doing, so the contralateral resting muscle is actually gaining strength and neural activity because of that. So the body doesn't completely separate one side from another. So let's think about this for a second, because this is pretty insane once you understand the ramifications of it. So let's fast forward to you have an athlete who's injured. Let's say their right shoulder is just really giving them problems. They can't do their right shoulder. They can't do overhead, they can't do pushes, nothing. It's right shoulder, staying still. If the left shoulder is healthy, and you're doing overhead presses, and you're doing chest presses, and you're doing rows, and you're doing lateral raises, or any other movement you can think of for your left arm, for that athlete who has injured their right arm, them continuing to work the left side of their body is actually the best way to help rehabilitate their right injured arm, even though their right arm is doing nothing. Let me say that one more time. The right arm is not doing any exercise, but if you do exercises or have the athlete do exercises with the left arm, again, we're all talking good technique, good load management, things of that nature. If you're doing that while this side is injured, this side is actually going to get stronger through increased strength and neural activity. So this is a game changer, especially when it comes to if athletes are a little banged up or injured, don't just say, okay, well, don't do anything. Just go sit on the bike and pedal or something like that. If it's an arm or a leg where you can isolate it and you can do the contralateral, so the opposite side, do that as much as possible while they're resting one side of their body because that's gonna help. But just bigger picture too with this cross-education principle, this is where you just really need to understand how much the nervous system, there's no just borders here in terms of the nervous system thinking completely right or completely left side. A lot of stuff flows and ebbs together. And so there's crossover with that. And so even with a particular training exercise, there may be a little bit of carryover. I mean, think about how crazy that is. If you're just curling your right arm and not doing anything with your left arm, your left arm is actually getting stronger. So. I just want to make sure you appreciate that cross-educational principle and the power that the central nervous system has in increasing strength. With that, there are these things of bilateral deficit and bilateral facilitation. So what does this mean? Let's break it down a little bit. Bilateral deficit is, let's again use the overhead press example, and we have dumbbells, so we can go one arm and the other. Bilateral deficit means Let's say I have 20 pounds in each hand, so 40 pounds total. I can press up 20 pounds with my right hand, I can press up 20 pounds with my left hand. But having them both together at the same time or give me a barbell that's 40 pounds, I'm not able to push it up. So the sum of the contraction between the two limbs is actually lower 
than what I can produce unilaterally. That's called a bilateral deficit. So if you think about the sum in both arms, and they can't do that with both of them bilaterally, bilateral deficit. Bilateral facilitation is the opposite. So again, we got 20 pounds in each hand. 20 pounds in the right hand, 20 pounds in the left hand. Pushing up together, you could give me a barbell at 50 or 55 pounds, so greater than that total sum, and I can press it up. That would be a bilateral facilitation. So again, the nervous system has a lot of power to be able to not only transfer strength gains from one side of the body to the other, but the total sum of strength that can be summoned, and this specifically through training. What you're typically going to see, bilateral deficits are typically in untrained or weaker athletes. And bilateral facilitation is typically going to be seen in higher level trained athletes or just higher, more advanced athletes. So again, here's just one of kind of a curious thing about the nervous system to be aware of. Now, we've talked about this before in the surge strength dryland certification of the nervous system being king, it flowing down in terms of how movement happens. We've talked about this through breathing, but now we're going to talk about it through energy. So remember with breathing, we talked about how the nervous system, depending on how you're breathing, could kind of send back messages and that affects movement. Well, the same thing happens with energy and how the body is creating energy that actually goes into movement. And one theory in particular, and again, this is just a theory and you'll hear kind of some different things about it. But most recently, Professor Timothy Noakes, and there have been some people before him talking about this, but he has been the most recent proponent, basically about this central governor model of fatigue. And so what this basically says is, think about the governor, and, and, and governor in a sense of if you've ever taken apart one of those one horsepower uh, engines like on a lawnmower, and there's a little governor that basically uh, makes sure the flywheel can't go too fast. So it keeps it spinning at a rate slower than what it really could. So a governor is holding it down. The central governor model is that the brain actually acts as that governor, dampening down what you can do overall. And there are a number of theories of just all the factors that come into it. Here's just one slide breaking it down. And then here's another, both on the central governor theory, but you could see how in this one, it has, you know, what are the motivations? What are the previous experiences of the athlete? What's the current workload? All of these factors play in to that brain. So when you ask an athlete, do 10 push-ups as fast as possible, this is actually an explanation of why it may be faster one day and slower another. So in terms of, is their motivation really different? Did they really do a hard training practice? And all of these things come into the brain is always trying to preserve the body. And so there is some thought that you can kind of train through this or pass this, and that's where you really get higher level performance. But also at the same time, the brain is always thinking of, <laughs> I'm trying to keep everything safe. I'm trying to keep everything moving. It doesn't know there's a swim meet coming up or that there's a hard training session. It's just thinking of survival and making sure it's standing upright and continuing to breathe. So just look through these uh, two breakdowns you can on the slides of the central governor model. Uh, we're not going to go into great detail about it in terms of the testing and stuff, but just overall understand that this is a theory that basically says the brain has a lot of say in what fatigue is. So it's not just what's happening at the muscle or what's happening with the heart rate or what's happening with the breathing rate, but that overall the brain is really dictating 
hey heart, slow down a little bit. We're working a little bit too hard. Or hey lungs, let's let's tile it down a little bit. Let's actually dampen it on purpose and not allow the athlete to do as much as they they physically could for a number of reasons. Again, here's just a few that through the central governor model, the brain may take into account, hey, we worked really hard yesterday. We're not going to work this hard today. And that's a very simplistic way to think about it. But just understand that this is a, a pretty uh, understood and accepted theory in terms of that the brain is playing a huge role in it. It's not just how tired is the muscle or how tired is the heart or how much air are you breathing in. But that again, the central nervous system is driving a lot of these underlying abilities and performance outputs that your athletes are going to have on a daily basis. So that wraps up this lesson on the neuromuscular system curiosities. Ryland Talk. Next question here. And again, remember, if you're joining us, uh, throw in your questions in the chat because we have a lot of questions to get through in uh, this session here. I'm almost halfway. <laughs> All right. This question from Tim. Uh, I would say in the assessments, uh, which one would you prioritize, prioritize when an athlete needs to work more than one area, which is not uncommon at all, because I was watching the case study number two and Chris explains it, but I was just curious if it depended on the athlete, which you would prioritize. So great question, Tim. And again, you are probably going to have athletes that have multiple issues or kind of not necessarily red flags, but points of emphasis that you need to address when you finally do assessments and testing with your swimmers. So remember, the max score is 24 that you can get on the assessment. The minimum is 14 with no pain. So you could get potentially less than a 14 score if your athlete had pain. Um, and the case study number two that Tim is referencing is the athlete had all uh, ones uh, except for the impingement score, which is a two, which is no pain. So the athlete was pretty poor mover. It, outside of no pain, they were moving about as poor as you could with that. So if you remember the sheets that we have for the assessment, I put that specifically in the order of priority that I would work through. So number one, shoulder impingement. Is there pain? Yes or no. Next one, shoulder mobility, single leg raise, overhead squat, hip hinge, single leg balance, and single leg squat. And all of those assessments have corresponding function movements and exercises that I would prescribe if they were weak in it. So in case study number two that Tim is referencing, the athlete was poor in all of them. So shoulder impingement, they didn't have any pain. That's great. But everything else was not good short of the athlete having pain. So I would start with shoulder mobility and straight leg, straight leg raise. Going back to the earlier question where we talked about how there's a connection between the shoulder and the hip. So don't just focus in on one. You could do a handful of exercises, Tim. So I would say I wouldn't have them do more than... Uh, I don't know. And I think I talked about this at some point in the sort of probably not having more than eight function exercises assigned to an athlete, maybe no more than six, but that still gives me, I could go two in shoulder mobility, two in single leg raise and two in overhead squat. That gets me to six, uh, maybe even go three if shoulder mobility is really bad, but you can spread it out a little bit. But what I wouldn't, I would not suggest is you flip it and say, all right, I'm going to just focus on single leg squat and single leg balance because that's kind of approaching it the wrong direction. If shoulder mobility, straight leg raise and overhead squat are not in good shape, then you're kind of barking up the wrong tree and wasting the athlete's time focusing on trying to get their single leg balance and single leg squatting ability 
better because there are more foundational things that you can do. So Tim, you can focus on a couple things, but go in the order of priority. Just go right down the sheet, but you can also start with the first two or three. That's okay. And a few exercises for each to prescribe. And what you should find is that especially uh, like shoulder mobility and single leg raise, they usually track improvement pretty similar together. Overhead squat, hip hinge, similar improvement. If one is getting better, you should see a little bit of progress bleed into the other one, even if you're not necessarily doing. um, So if an athlete can get better at overhead squat, then you do the hip hinge the next day, their hip hinge might actually be a little bit better because they're gaining mobility and those are balancing each other out a little bit. So it builds off each other. Don't feel you got to focus in on one, but at the same time, don't skip everything and go to the bottom of the list. And I'll go all the way back to the first question. Be slow and patient with it. Have them own it. If you're doing dryland two or three times a week and your athlete scored a 14, you need to have them doing function as much as possible. Well, this is going to be a long time before you can say, hey, they're in the, the high teens or 20s in their score. It's just a matter of frequency. So if you have a really poor scoring athlete on the assessment, have them own a few function exercises that they know they need to do when they wake up in the morning, when they go to bed, before practice, after practice, as much as possible. Obviously, having good technique, remembering our rules about stretching, being able to breathe and smile. So keep all those things in mind, Tim, when you're working with a case study like number two, where that's just pouring uh, really, really, that's scoring really poorly on that. All right, next question, near and dear to my heart, uh, because this is the type of person that uh, we started training as a company with Ritter 10 plus years ago. So the other day you stated that college swimmers should have a baseline of strength of one and a half times body weight for squat and deadlift, for examples. How about us at 30, 40, or 50 plus years of age, possibly adult learners? Until recently, before this podcast, he's referring to the Surge Strength Podcast, I've considered strength work as injury prevention. Now my coach gave me the advice to get stronger, which is exciting. As a man with the body figure of a matchstick, I've got some gains to look forward to. However, how strong is reasonable from the perspective of master swimming? Given that the most that most older swimmers will struggle to gain a lot of muscle, maybe lifelong lifting and resetting goals for each year is the key. I know us master swimmers are not the main audience, but I do enjoy my new focus on letting the on uh, lifting in the weight room, helping me at the pool and the lake. Pardon the long question. I hope it finds its way into the podcast. Uh, you bet it's going to at some point into the dryland talk segment. So, like I said, I started training master swimmers. That was the first population I trained online that got this whole thing started now that has now evolved into surge strength and the certification, everything else. So what I would say is number one, um, those clients were even in their 60s and 70s. So don't sell yourself short just at 50, uh, whoever you are. We, we've worked with athletes all the way. Uh, I'm not sure if we've worked with anyone in their 80s, but pretty close. So all the way, age is just a number, right? Like Dara Torres let us know. So don't worry about that. He is mixing a little bit between strength gains and hypertrophy gains. So make sure you have that distinction. So he said, hey, he's a matchstick. So I don't know if bulking up is necessarily the best goal for him, but you can still get very strong without bulking up. And that's one of the things we talk about as we're going through the certification, right? Because as swimmers, for them to perform better in water, we don't want to increase the drag frequency in the pool by adding a lot of mass. So that's the key is how can we get our athletes stronger 
without adding mass. So I just want to make sure to clarify that because his mistake is what a lot of people make is they equate getting bigger with getting stronger. And I can tell you from the older population of master swimmers all the way through the elites and high schoolers, I've seen athletes get very much significantly stronger without necessarily increasing large muscle mass. So don't make those uh, mistake of equating those two. What I'll say is the standard is the standard. One and a half times body weight, one times body weight is not that much to squat, to deadlift. Now, you may never get there, especially if you start later in life. Let's say you've never done strength training until your 50s. That's okay. I'm not saying you need to get that next year. You may not even ever get it. But the more important process is the journey to there, not necessarily the destination. So you should still have that as your standard to progress there. And if you don't ever get there, that's okay. But I'm still going to hold that carrot out to you because I've seen it with swimmers in their 40s and 50s, even 60s, get significantly stronger so that they could hit those standards even without a lot of extensive strength training in their background. Slow and steady is the key though, especially if you're a master swimmer and you don't have a lot of experience in the weight room. I want you to think about this as a year-to-year project, not a month-to-month or week-to-week project. So the younger kids, the high schoolers, the college kids, they can improve significantly in a very short amount of time and their body can adapt to it. But as you age, I've actually found that athletes can get much stronger, but the recovery time is what really slows down as you age. So therefore, you need to build in more time. So you may be able to lift relatively intense for whatever it is, whether you're at the one and a half standard or not, you can still have good intense lifting sessions, but they may only happen once or twice a week based on how you recover as a master's athlete. So keep all that in mind, but I have no doubt, especially if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, you can get to one, one and a half times body weight, deadlifting, squatting, just go slow and steady. And it may take you a few years and that's okay. And even if you never get to that, that's still what you should be working towards. And it's all about the journey, not necessarily the destination for that. Um, But great question. I love the master's swimming uh, community. That's awesome. They inspire me. Seeing seeing a relay of four people, uh, four guys in their uh, upper 90s break the world record. That was pretty awesome. So if I could be swimming when I'm in my 90s, uh, that'll be a win too. So keep it up, guys. All right. Another question. Is super priming weights the same concept as wearing a parachute in the water? Great question. So we talk about this. I forget what um, module and lesson off the top of my head. I I can't remember if it was the periodization one or it may have been module seven with the training specificity. But I have found that this is an incredible way to help get swimmers faster in the water by doing a little bit of dry land with intense weights on land and then jumping into the pool. And yes, it's very similar to having a parachute in the water because it's raising the level of muscle activation that's required. So even though swimming can be very taxing, very tough, it's really more aerobically challenging. And the amount of actual force that you need in a catch is is not that big. It's, It's not even double digits in terms of the pounds sometimes of force that you're actually producing, being able to get through the water. But the weights can produce a much higher level of activation than even the parachute because you're in the water. On land, you have something solid to push against. So in the water, there's no way you're moving 200 pounds, right? Of deadlifting, uh, squatting, whatever it may be. 
on land, because you have something hard to push against, you can produce more force. So yes, it is similar, but I would say on land, I'm going to prefer doing something like that into the water uh, if I'm trying to get that post-activation potential of the muscles. And this is yet another reason why, coaches, you need to keep dry land intensity high as you go through taper, specifically with resistance training. I actually just talked to a strength conditioning coach a few days ago. His team is is looking about uh, having us do their dry land programming for us. And the strength conditioning coach was bemoaning to me that his head coach cuts dry land out 10 days, two weeks before taper meet. And the strength and conditioning coach is just pulling his hair out saying, coach, this is not scientific. We need to keep it closer to the, to the taper meet. But this is an old school swim coach that's just kind of set in his ways. And that's you know what we used to know is, hey, stop dry land a few weeks out. And that's not what you need to do if you're following the science and the principles of strength and conditioning. You need to reduce the volume but keeping up that intensity, which is what this example is talking about, that post-activation potential, that's what actually keeps your athlete sharp, strong, and powerful all the way through the meet. You just want to drop the volume so they're not so tired. So I know I kind of went all over the place uh, with that question, but that's a good one and good making that correlation between parachute in water swimming and the post-activation potential you get doing weights. And that's an important reason why make sure you're doing drowning all the way through taper and play around with it sometimes, especially if you have deck space, if you have pull-ups, I would integrate that a lot of times as a coach with my athletes. If I had dry land space right next to the pool, making sure I do that and around like sprint or race type sets to kind of prime my athletes and that helped them get some breakthroughs sometimes. All right, guys, last question here that we have submitted. So if you are on, make sure you submit your question uh, before we sign off. If you have one, hope this was helpful. So the last question is, um, what about a circuit setup? How much time for each station? So I want to make sure I'm widening your view of the question, right? So that's one of the first, uh, I talk about that in one of the first couple of lessons about asking better questions, not looking for the right answers. So this person, I feel like they're looking for, all right, Chris, is it 10 seconds? Is it 20 seconds? Is it 30 seconds? What's the magic number that I'm looking for in the circuit? The better question is, how should I think about constructing my whole circuit, not just how much time on the circuit? So we got to remember the eight dynamic variables that we have when we're creating dryland workouts, range of motion, volume, load, tempo, rest, the order of exercises, the density and complexity of those movements as well. So it's not just about when you're creating a circuit or a dryland session, whatever you're doing, it's not just about one element. There are multiple elements that come into play. And the better question I would say is, are my ratios balanced rather than what's the magic number of time that I should be doing each exercise for? Because if my ratios of push-pull, squat, hinge are balanced, the time isn't going to be as much of a factor because the ratios are going to help the athlete develop their strength in a much more balanced way. And that's going to help them more in the water than if I'm doing 20 seconds versus 30 seconds of an exercise in a circuit. It's just not going to be that much of a difference in that. With the time though, what I will say is, remember our clean training concept. So on dry land, we know that we are taxing the athletes. We're getting them sore and then we're also depleting them of energy. The worst thing that we could do on dry land is to make this, the time that they have in the water less productive by a couple factors. One way that you can do that 
is by not having clean training in your dry land. And that means getting them into that uh, lactate produce, producing zone a lot so that they have a lot more waste products that they have to clear as a result of the dryland training session. So in the water, that's fine, right? They're training for that. That's okay. On land, we want to avoid that as much as possible and only use that in specific circumstances. Mainly, if you're out of the water, that's an appropriate circumstance to use that for. So the clean training concept means you need to keep those bouts of whatever exercise you're doing under 30 seconds, because that means minimal waste products are being produced and therefore their recovery time is going to be much quicker. And so in the water, they're going to still be performing. So again, the worst thing you could do with a dryland program is get them so sore, so tired that then the next couple of days in the water, they look awful and they're not, they're not getting any better. That dryland program is not useful at all in helping generate faster swimmers. So keeping it clean, making sure it's under 30 seconds, and also being aware of your work to rest ratios. If anything, I would have a greater rest ratio to work to make sure the athletes are able to clear that and they're not getting all junked up in their system that they then need a couple of days to clear out before they're close to 100%. So lots of variables to think about much more than just how long should I do this exercise in a circuit? And then you also have to think when you're putting together a circuit like that, how many exercises are you doing um, and, and how many then can you fit in with the time with the athletes and everything else that you have? Have you joined the Surge Strength Academy yet? It's now free to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy and raise your dryland IQ. Visit surge-strength.com to learn more and enroll today. That's surge-strength.com to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy. The goal of Surge Strength is simple. Build better athletes to generate faster swimmers.